Good morning. Today's reading is taken from the book of Judges, chapter 2, from verse 6 to 19. And it's on page 243 of our church Bible. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things that the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnat Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, not of Mount Gash. After the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of readers who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. This is the reading of the Lord. Thank you very much, Patrick. Please do keep open Judges uh, chapter 2 as we'll be working through it together uh, this morning. Let's uh, pray together before we do that. 
Paul wrote that these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Our Father, our prayer this morning is that uh, we might see the Lord Jesus Christ and that we would stick like glue to him throughout our uh, remaining days. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in no way am I getting at you, Ben, uh, as I begin this way, but the sobering and shocking truth is that not all who exit the baptistry will enter heaven. Some who walk into churches, into youth groups, into membership, into staff teams, into leadership, and yes, even into pulpits, tragically end up walking away from the Lord Jesus Christ. This passage is about the frightening reality of apostasy, the troubling fact that one generation may have a tenacious faith in the Lord, and yet their children reject the Lord. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, the Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith. As a pastor, few things hurt more than seeing dear friends uh, walk away uh, from the Lord, and I've seen it a number of times. John chapter 6, verse 66 is one of the most heartbreaking verses in the Bible. Shortly after Jesus has finished teaching that he is the bread of life, saying, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever, we read, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And then Jesus asked the twelve, you don't want to leave too, do you? Now that question makes such a a personal and such a pointed appeal to everyone. I ask it of myself. I ask it of the leaders of the church here. I ask it of every member and every professing Christian this morning. Please don't uh, suspect that I've got an uncharitable uncharitable spirit uh, towards anyone here in particular or think that anyone here might prove apostate. At the same time, if there are any here who are cold towards the Lord, indifferent to his word, growing in sinful desires, increasing in your love for the things of this world, and declining in your love for other believers, then I don't want to hold back this question that Jesus Christ himself is asking. You don't want to leave too, do you? Do you want to leave Jesus Christ? Do you want to turn your back on him? Do you want to forsake the Lord and follow another? That's the question. And uh, I, I trust no one here is in that position. But if, if there is somebody like that, well, you won't be the first, nor will you be the last. Why do those once calling themselves Christians turn aside from him? 
Why does it matter? And, and what's the Lord's reaction uh, when somebody does that? Well, these are all questions that Judges chapter 2 asks, answers for us. Uh, and the first one is the reason for apostasy, the reason that some people turn aside from Jesus Christ. Sit there in verses 6 to 10. Now, our passage begins on a positive note about those who stayed the course, those who were faithful uh, to the Lord. So we have Joshua called the servant of the Lord and the people he led who we read also served the Lord. It is a bright spot shining at the start of what is otherwise a pretty gloomy passage. A faithful generation, all stayed the course, all received from the Lord their promised inheritance. But then we meet verse 10, and the light gives way to darkness. Another generation grew up. And this generation don't share the faith of their parents or grandparents. They prove faithless. They walk away from the faith of their ancestors. They are apostate. The previous generation served the Lord, but this generation will not. Why? Well, fundamentally, the reason for their apostasy is given there in verse 10, that they knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Now, when we contrast this with the previous generation who had seen all of the great things the Lord had done, we, we assume the problem is they were just ignorant, they just didn't know. That this fresh generation didn't know about the Lord, they didn't know of all of the things he had done. Highly unlikely. For a start, part of being faithful meant that parents were supposed to pass on the truths of God to their children. Truths about the Red Sea crossing, about the Exodus, about the crossing of the Jordan, and about that time when they saw the walls of Jericho crashing uh, to the floor. They passed those things on, or they would have been unfaithful parents and not commended in our text. The text says that they were faithful. What's more, the phrase, they knew not the Lord, crops up in 1 Samuel chapter 2. It's describing the sons of Eli the priest. They themselves were priests, and they are said to not know the Lord. Now, clearly they knew about the Lord, but they didn't know the Lord. Scandalously, they cared nothing about, they had no regard for the Lord. And this new generation, they knew about the Lord, but the Lord and his salvation were just not, they were just not precious to them. They had heard about God from the time they were sucking dummies, but they just weren't bothered. They weren't moved by what God had done for them. In other words, they had no relish for the gospel that they were saved from slavery in Egypt and brought into the promised land by the gracious, mighty hand of God. 
So then the reason they became apostate was that they never knew the Lord. The reason why people walk away from Jesus Christ is the same. I know people who have walked away from Christ, people who have prayed a commitment at a summer camp, people who have been baptized, people who have been regular, even for years, on a Sunday. They say they trusted Christ, but they never treasured Christ. He was never at the center of their lives. Now, it is true that a child of God can never fully and finally fall away. But the church of Christ on earth has many illegitimate children. Look, I know that um, there are parents here who agonize over their unbelieving children. They are rejoicing this morning when they see uh, Ben being baptized. But at the same time, it's tinged with sadness for them as they think about their own children who are unbelieving. But it's not always the parents' fault. This text lays responsibility squarely on the generation who refused to believe. Each generation, each person, bears their own responsibility if they walk away from the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we parents do have a responsibility to teach our our, our kids. But, and I speak to the YP1 here as much as to anyone else, we all have an individual responsibility to follow Jesus Christ. Of course, this is a, a perennial peril One generation has a living faith, loves the Lord, counts it a privilege to pray, to read the Bible, serves joyfully, and yet the next generation just aren't that bothered. Sometimes they stay in churches. They enjoy the friendship, the intellectual stimulation, the feeling of comfort that the church brings, the music. But there is no real taste for Jesus Christ. No real fire in the heart, no real faith, merely copied religiosity. Here is the reason why people walk away from Jesus Christ. They never knew him. And here's the reason why people walk away, says the Apostle John from Christ's church. They went out from us, he says, because they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Let's move then from the reason for apostasy to the reality of it, looking at verses 11 to 13. Now, not valuing, not treasuring God and the gospel leads eventually to the reality of apostasy. And verse 11 is a key verse. Not just here, it's repeated right through the book of Judges. It says, Then the Israelites did literally the evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. Apostasy is the evil. It's not talking about evil in general, 
but the evil of choosing to abandon the Lord and to follow other lords. Now that Canaanite word Baal even actually means Lord. And the verbs there in this paragraph emphasize the radical reality of their apostasy. They served, they forsook, they followed, they worshipped, they forsook, they served Baal and the Ashtoreths. So recently, um, Joshua chapter 24, Israel had recommitted themselves to be a one-God people. But now, verses 11 to 13 keeps repeating it, they forsook the Lord who redeemed them from Egypt and they followed other lords. Now, the sin of apostasy is particularly heinous because it's not only forsaking the creator, now that would be evil enough, but it's also to forsake the saviour, the redeemer. For us, forsaking the one who bought us with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It is an outrageous thing. Apostasy, by the way, doesn't usually mean abandoning all belief in God. Belief that God exists is rarely the issue. The issue is revolting against exclusive devotion that the Lord calls for. Whenever I get the chance to visit the British Museum, um, I like to go to room 57 and to see the collection of Canaanite idols, the Baals and their female counterparts, the Ashtoreth. And you know what? Not once have I felt the desire to fall down and to worship them. Not once. So why did the Canaanites? And why did the Israelites? Well, because of what the idols symbolized. They were symbols of fertility. See, when the Lord, uh, sorry, when the Israel saw that the land flowed with milk and honey, when they saw that it was fertile, in other words, they asked why. And their Canaanite neighbors explained to them, if you want the rain to fall and if you want the crops to grow, then you need to go after Baal. He's the way forward. See, Baal was a way for them to secure their security and their prosperity. And it seemed to work. The land was flowing with milk and honey. And as part of the deal, you got to visit the shrine prostitute. What's not to like? Bulging barns and nookie on the side. We see why they were tempted. Now, from a distance, it can seem as though the Old Testament view of idolatry was fairly primitive, but but actually it's highly sophisticated. In Ezekiel chapter 14, the Lord says that the Israelites have set up idols in their hearts. Idolatry isn't a statue thing, it's a heart thing. 
the reformer John Calvin famously said that the heart is a forge for idols or a factory of idols. And idolatry is a problem for everyone. It's a problem for you, a problem for me as well. Everyone lets things that are not God get into bed with them. In case you object to that uh, image, it's there in verse 17. It's the word prostituted. It's a provocative image, isn't it? When we serve an idol, we come into an intense relationship with it. It uses us, but it doesn't really care for us. Whenever someone has a relationship with, uh, with the Lord, whenever they turn to idols, they act like they are a married prostitute. If you wish to identify your idols, and the, the, some of the men started doing this on uh, their seminar on Tuesday, just ask yourself these questions. But before you say, what idols? I can't see any idols. Remember that an idol can be almost anything, even good things, that we turn into God things. It might be a partner, a child, grandkids, friend, or pet. It might be a qualification, a career, or status. It might be a bank balance, freedom from work, travel, holidays, health, a car, sports team, the latest tech, a clean house, a sex life, the theatre. It might be appearance or comfort or desire for control. An idol is anything that you look to for security or you look to to give value to, to your life in some way. Remember that, that an idol can be pretty much anything. Now then, ask yourself these questions. Ask yourself, what do I have in my life, sorry, what do I not have in my life that if only I had, I believe it would make me happy? Husband, child, more money, better job, better home, latest iPhone, on the flip side, ask what do I have that if taken away would not only leave me unhappy but would leave me devastated? What can't I live without? Status, respect, acceptance, freedom to do what you want when you want? If we ask these questions to the Israelites top of their agenda was security and prosperity. These are the idols that led them to the reality that was eventually apostasy, to forsake the Lord and to follow other lords. May this never be for anyone in this room, but if you were to apostatize, if you were to forsake Jesus Christ... What idol would be responsible in your life? The reason, the reality, finally, the reaction to apostasy, verses 14 to 19. Verses 14 and 15 then spell out the Lord's reaction to apostasy. 
They're very confronting verses because they show us that God will not tolerate rivals to his love. He will no more tolerate spiritual adultery than a husband would tolerate his wife jumping into bed with other lovers. You see, anger is not always the opposite of love. It can be the outworking of love. And that's why spiritual adultery kindles the Lord's anger against us. God is rightly angry when the people in his world set other things in his place. His anger isn't against a particular people group or a particular type of person. Here, his anger is kindled against his own people. And this anger shouldn't surprise us because it is the price of being loved. Imagine imagine a husband discovering his wife mid-affair and just reacting, well, you win some and you lose some, don't you? It's just, just the way the cookie crumbles, isn't it? What would we think of that reaction? Well, we would think he doesn't truly love his wife. True love, when it's spurned, bursts out into jealous flame. When we run after idols, God's anger against us is real. And he rises up against us. Just as he rose up in the passage here to defeat Israel and bringing them to a point of great distress... It is a disciplining love. You know this if you're a follower of Christ. If you've been a follower for any time at all, you you turn to something which you shouldn't. Let's call it an idol, be it food or sex, career or control. And the Holy Spirit is immediately on your case, isn't he? And if we do not turn, well, eventually we find ourselves, well, we're miserable (laughs) We find ourselves in great distress. Anger that disciplines is the outworking of God's love for you. But you see, it's not only his anger that's kindled, but also his grace. His compassion is kindled. Do you see it there in verses 16 to 19? Israel's sin, God is furious. Israel suffers at the hand of their enemies. But then, the Lord raised up judges, rescuers, saviors, who saved them out of the hands of their enemies. Astonishingly, God's basic disposition towards his idolatrous people is gracious Let's just take a moment. First, this is grace shown in the face of the most heinous betrayal. Israel had forsaken the one who had saved them from slavery and death. And then time and time again, as they, he led them to the promised land. It is heinous betrayal. Second, this is grace that is persistent You see, it's not as if Israel sin, God angers, they suffer, so God says a judge 
No, no, no. He doesn't send a judge. He sends many judges time and again. Because Israel don't listen to their judges. You see, the judges, by the way, weren't just military leaders. They were preachers. Israel don't listen, but, verse 17, instead, they keep on prostituting themselves. And how does God respond to this repeated heinous betrayal? Well, he is gracious to them. Verse 18, whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. This is persistent grace. And third, this is grace that springs from God's great compassion. It's um, often pointed out that Israel find themselves hopelessly trapped in a downward vortex. And this vortex kind of repeats itself Uh, through judges. So you get this pattern, Israel sin. God angers. Israel suffer. Israel calls out to grace, for grace. God raises up a judge. The judge dies. Israel sins again. God gets angry again. And on it goes, on and on, round and round, down and down. And each time, as verse 19 says, things get worse. The people become more corrupt refusing to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. But here, there is a missing element in the cycle. Did you spot it? Israel don't cry out for mercy. They are in great distress, but they don't cry out for mercy. What's the point? Well, the point is, that God teaches us that his grace does not spring from our repentance, but from his great compassion. Your God is moved by your distress. His heart goes out to you when you are hurting. Now, like me, you probably think that when you sin or when you are in a time of suffering, the the Lord's heart recoils from you. Wrong. He sees. He cares. He has compassion on you. And he acts to save you. Dear friends, God's compassion is kindled towards us even when our wounds are self-inflicted, which they usually are. We stand around about 3,300 years after the judges, but God's compassion burns as warm today as it did then. We have a priest in heaven whose sympathy and compassion is undiminished Your Lord, if he is your Lord, has a ferocious jealousy over you. But at the same time, there is no sin 
no failure, no idolatry, no act of betrayal or unfaithfulness that he is unwilling to forgive today. When we stand back and look at the God of the Bible, he is, as Dale Ralph Davis, the Old Testament scholar said, absolutely uninventable. He is an unguessably wonderful God. Serving him, seeing him, truly worshipping him is the only antidote to apostasy. Allow me to get personal. Picture your life right now. Think about its trajectory. Think about the idol's in your life. Idolatry is a problem for everyone. Your idol, it may be appearance, your taste for the fine things of life. It might be your job, your family. Perhaps it's your pride, that independence must control everything, self at center heart. Your idols kindle God's jealous anger, but also his compassion. Hear his compassion when he asks you this question. You don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus once met a rich man. Jesus asked him to give up his idolatry of money. Tragically, the man refused and full of sadness, he walked away from Jesus Christ. Maybe forever, who knows? On another occasion, Jesus described a man who had squandered his inheritance on wild living. And he realized that he was living life in the pigsty. But he came to his senses. He left the pigsty. He determined to go home, not knowing what to expect. But the welcome he received was better than he ever dared dream. Jesus says it's like that whenever an idolater forsakes their idols and comes back to God. They will be welcomed in the Father's house and there will be an endless celebration. You don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. The one thing that will prevent apostasy and stop us walking away from Jesus Christ is knowing that he alone is worthy of our worship. Knowing him, there is no greater thing, there is no greater person. Worship of anything or anyone else is emptiness. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray for forgiveness when we have forsaken you and turn to follow things that are not you, things that cannot satisfy. And we pray for all of us that we would know what the idols are in our lives and we would 
recognize that the idols are nothing but emptiness, that we would turn from them to you, the living God, the only one who can satisfy us and save us. Amen.